0: Hey folks, this is Ian Foster, and this is If and When, a podcast where I talk to other creators about how and why they do their thing. To start, I'm talking to colleagues, friends, and veterans of the arts community at home here in Newfoundland and Labrador, Canada. These are not so much traditional interviews as they're a chat over coffee or something a little stronger. So come sit in and have a listen. Hey, how's it going? Welcome back to the podcast or welcome for the first time. Thanks for tuning in. Either way, I feel like I should be whispering this intro because I'm recording this quite late in the studio tonight, but it is October somehow the pumpkin spice month. What's your favorite pumpkin spice thing? Maybe the latte, the, my friend showed me yogurt, pumpkin spice yogurt, gross. Like, I don't know. Anyway, what's going on with us? Well, between now and next week's episode, we're announcing our Christmas tour. I know, I know it's just October. We're not ready, but you know, ticket sales and stuff. We got to do this. This is how the process works. So we're announcing the Christmas tour and genuinely we can't wait for that part of it. Um, Last year we did Across the Island, parts of Nova Scotia. This year we're doing Ontario, then New Brunswick, then bringing it all back home for a whole bunch of dates across Newfoundland. I hope you'll check out the website, ianfoster.ca, and come see us on this tour. It's going to be just that little bit bigger, a little bit better than last year, and we're stoked for it. And you can check out that record at the appropriate time. You know, mid-November. Check it out then. Maybe even towards the end of November. But definitely by the end of November, because we're on the road. Later this month... On October 20th, as I've been mentioning, the very first live episode of If and When. If you've been tuning into any of these so far, I would love for you to come to the rooms, the Provincial Art Gallery, the rooms, at the theater there. I'm going to be sitting down to talk to Mary Walsh live in front of a studio audience. We're recording it, and then it's going to be uploaded here eventually. But you want to be the person who can be like, ah, I already heard that. Or, oh my God, can you believe all those things that they cut out because they were too saucy to even put on air? And by on air, I mean the internet. Think about that. Imagine something not going on the internet because it was too saucy. Anyway, I hope you'll come. October 20th, 2 p.m., The Rooms. You can check that out through their website. It'll be on my website. All the details, if you're going to forget, put it in your calendars. Today on the podcast... Eric West. This is the second of my field recording series, which was recorded during the summer when we were on tour. I was in central Newfoundland near Ladle Cove where Eric lives. And so I popped by his house. We had a nice lunch. And then this great conversation. I met Eric a few years ago through a series that he runs in Musgrave Harbor, a music concert series. And since then I've gotten to know him a little bit better. He's a man like many of us creatives who wears many hats he runs uh, a music camp. He runs this concert series. He's a, a musician who plays many different styles of music, and he's also done a few arrangement books for artists like Buddy, what's his name, and the other fellows, and Ron Hines. And I have the Ron Hines chord book sitting right next to me right now, and uh, it's it's a really great and faithful transcription of Ron's songs. And we get into conversations like what goes into that and what makes those songs um, special from the perspective of someone who sat down to analyze them for publishing, which is something that I don't ever hear talked about very much. So I found that really, really cool to have that conversation. Anyway, without further ado, this is part one of my conversation with musician Eric West.
1: I was born in Gander, and I uh, have uh, my parents are from Ladle so I moved back here about 20 years ago
0: i've worked all across canada i guess Mm-hmm. cool and when when did music sort of begin for you what's the earliest memory
1: well i started um i guess playing piano both my sisters had taken piano and i was expected and encouraged to uh, from about nine years old cool. so i took piano lessons for about uh, three years and i was moderately interested in it um and then I stopped taking piano lessons and I picked up the guitar. I still continued playing a little bit, the piano it is. And, but guitar quickly became my main focus. Right. And I taught myself uh, how to read notes uh, using the skills that I had from piano.
0: Do you remember what you were playing on piano back then?
1: Like what? What kind of rep? Well, you know, classical music was the main thing, but I did get into learning some Newfoundland material from a, a book that uh, uh, Kenneth Peacock put out, actually. Very difficult arrangements for piano. Okay. Newfoundland songs. Yeah. How so? Why? Uh, Favourite songs in Newfoundland. <laughs> well, Kenneth Peacock's mostly known as a Folk Song Collector, but he was also a, a composer and serious musician. And... Um, I guess he was at one point collaborated with Alan Mills to do a collection called Favourite Songs of Newfoundland. You can still get it. Uh it came out in the fifties. Um uh, early sixties. Um uh yeah, the arrangements are meant to be sort of for moderate, you know, uh level pianists, but in actual fact you'd have to be Langol to play <laughs> arrangements up the tempo. Oh really? Oh yeah. They're, they're just very fussy arrangements. Okay. Um I mean, some of them are quite beautiful but um, and intricate, but, you know, they, you know, they read the preamble and <laughs> it says, you know, they're meant to be sort of played casually around the piano, <laughs> but it's not that, not for me anyway.
0: Yeah, I find that really interesting about Newfoundland music and I guess folk music in a broader sense because there's this belief that the music is very simple. You know, I suppose the famous uh, three chords and the truth thing and the idea that that it's by the fact that it's music for the people or music of the people, that it will be at a level that's sort of accessible to everyone. And I guess a lot of these songs ultimately can be and boil down to that. But there's also a virtuosity to a um, a lot of the performances. I think about like you know some of those, you know, accordion pieces or fiddle pieces. I mean, they're quite challenging.
1: They are. That's right. And you know, you, uh, that's the great thing about folk music. You can choose the level you want to come in at.
0: Mm-hmm. And
1: a lot of Newfoundland sounds can be played with two or three chords. Right. You know, but they can also be done more complexly. Right. With more complexity. And uh, that's the wonderful thing about it. You know, you can do. A, a wonderful jazz arrangement of Let Me Fish Off Cape St. Mary's, which I've heard, and it sounds wonderful. You can also do a simple arrangement of it, and uh, that's, let's just say, that's the thing that makes our, our folk music so valuable as a teaching tool, as a preserving our culture. It's it's wonderful that the new generation are coming along bringing their own, their own approach to it.
0: Right. Do you remember what it was that drew you to that? I mean, like you were saying, you sort of started with classical, but then clearly found your way to this particular um, this particular book that became your entry in Newfoundland music. What was what was the thing that drew you to that music? Was it the story in the lyrics? Was it just the kind of the sound of the chord progressions?
1: Wow, well, it's a lot of things. And Gander, it's yes I had a dual life. In Gander, it's an airport town, you know, the American influence, the Canadian bass, and so on. You, you know, we were brought up on pop music. So, with, you know, it was more like Jimi Hendrix and the Beatles when I was in Gander. And when you're in Ladle Cove, it was country music and accordion music and Newfoundland songs. And right. So I had the, the, both both worlds. Right. And uh, so, you know, I was playing in my teens. I was playing pop music, trying to get a band going in Gander. With electric guitar out here is playing acoustic guitar, play, playing the songs of Harry Hibbs and right country songs and so on. But my um, music has always appealed to me because it's the music that sort of uh, uh, we're brought up in that we feel a closeness to. Okay? It tells about our history. It, it's the music that you play around the campfire, around the, around the table. It's uh, so it's music that brings us together mm-hmm. more than anything else. It's uh, it's our own common language. And we're very lucky to have it. Not not many parts of parts of Canada do.
0: Hmm. That's a good point. Yeah. And, and I'm curious. So this is something I've asked a few people uh, along the way uh, because one of I guess the subtopics of this podcast tends to be how we think about the past now versus how it actually happened, you know? And I'm always so curious about how, well, you tell me how perception of Newfoundland music was back at the time we're talking about. Like you just talked about playing rock and roll and pop music and being influenced by American music. Was that the thing that your generation was listening to say more than Newfoundland music? Did it run right alongside it? Was Newfoundland music as quote-unquote cool then as it seems to be now with certain generations?
1: Well, it's certainly not in Gander. Uh, Gander, uh, you, you know, you were almost ashamed to have a Newfoundland accent or, you know, be, mm. you wouldn't be caught dead playing accordion. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that was in the, I'm talking about 60s now. Yeah. Mid-60s, early to mid-60s. Yeah, no, Gander was sort of emulating, you know, the United States American music. And so, you know, Jimi Hendrix, Gordon Lightfoot, um, those are the, the names, uh, you know, that you would be aware of. The Beatles, of course, mm-hmm. uh, all through the 60s. Now, in Ladle Cove, uh, that was a world apart. I mean, you had to take a seven-hour trip on the coast of Boat from from Looseport. take the train to Looseport, and then a seven-hour voyage. It was a different world. Right. A different world. Uh, right up until early 60s. Mm-hmm. And later, it was still pretty isolated. Mm-hmm. But... Um, First, when we came, you know, we would come here as children. Uh, in the summer, it was, like, say, a, a major voyage, and you know, you felt um, differently uh, about the music when you were here. It's, it's uh, so you, the traditional music and country music, as I said, um, was you know the the dominant thing, and you you change your your attitude when you're here. And you adapt to it. You get used to the accents. Like, a, a, I remember one time coming back to school, I think it was uh, maybe grade three or four, and having a strong accent after spending the summer in Laidlcoupe and being sort of made fun of lightly by my friends. You know? Right, right. And um, it's something you, you, you know, you tried to, not to sort of stand out in that way when you're in Gander. Right, right. But gradually now things changed uh, uh, in the latter 60s and, you know, um, we started to gradually take pride in Newfoundland music and people like Harry Hibbs sort of made the folk music cool, particularly for the older generation. Teenagers weren't so affected by it. Mm. But when you're in, in, in the outboards, suddenly hearing this music on the radio, you know, give it a certain uh, cachet, a certain importance. Right. And so uh, certainly for the older generation, uh, that was
0: a big deal. Right. Right. That's interesting. And in thinking about the accent thing you said, you know, it's, it's fascinating how, how, uh, how, what am I trying to say that that's sort of, how hyper aware uh, that we are of, of accents, you know, because of course touring now for myself, people always call the Newfoundland accent. And it makes me laugh. The yeah. idea that there's a Newfoundland accent That's when right. you're talking about like the difference between ladle cove and gander and the accent. And I'm sure in gander, in the broad sense, there's a gander accent for those people, but they would be making fun of your ladle cove accent Yeah, that distance away, that That's... it would be that different that they would detect it.
1: And oh it was a definite difference though i mean you know in gander everyone did everything possible to hide the fact that they may have come from the airports right it was almost like a shame uh, you know so it's uh and that and that translated to the music as well mm-hmm. as i say you know except for you know the older generation but certainly in school um you would, you wouldn't really hear much of traditional music perhaps like in a glee club you might hear you know a classical arrangement of a Newfoundland folk song or something right you know uh, the, the the nuns perhaps or you know a, a choral arrangement or something like that but you know people weren't sort of uh, singing Newfoundland music in uh, variety shows like uh, like you would hear today right so there was that uh, it was well, well into the 70s uh, before younger people took much interest in, I think
0: what was the reason for that?
1: Well, I, I think uh, probably a number of things, you know, as I say, radio taking notice of these things and uh, television having programs on that, uh, you know, featured uh, traditional music yeah. all around the circle, I suppose. And of course, when Figgy Duff started to come around in the mid-70s and uh, combining rock music with folk music, mm-hmm. that I think that made a difference as well, you know. Mm-hmm. It's sort of funny because, you know, some of the original members uh, of Lucky's Boat came from Gander and, and they they sort of combined with uh, other musicians. F- Figgy Duff sort of came out of that folk rock tradition. Right. And so uh, they incorporated uh, a lot of folk music into their performances, Lucky's Boat as well, as and then Figgy Duff combined more emphasis on the folk music than the rock music.
0: Right. Now, it's kind of infamous how unpopular Figgy Duff was in some circles you know uh, that they would do well say at the Arts and Culture Center in St. John's but you know by by their own accounts via conversation with Pamela or talking to Sandy about them that they had some notoriously difficult shows in places like Fogo Island where they would play and no one would go and you know what was your take on it as an outsider, sort of watching a band like that trying to do that thing you just described of meld the, I guess, the newness of rock with the oldness of folk music.
1: Well, I I generally appreciated their efforts. I mean, I, I was you know part of, I guess I heard them on the Mainland when I was still uh, I was studying in Ottawa, and uh, and when I came back for the summers and, yeah, I mean I I thought what they were doing was was really uh, Fabulous, and for the most part, uh, so I, I certainly appreciate it. But you know, I I knew where they're they were coming from because with we grew up with Lukey's boat, right, uh, and the precursors, you Neil know, Bishop and <clears throat> Al Smith, you know, were our, our house band high school band, you know.
0: Right, you could you could trace the mm-hmm. the the lines back to, you know, you could see what happens when it's like if you give. Some hippies with long hair, electric guitars, but they come from the legacy of Newfoundland music. How that could work, I guess some people just didn't see it. Just sort of came out of nowhere to a certain group of people.
1: Yeah, that's right. And, and um, I remember <laughs> bringing my electric guitar to Langel Cove, and you know, as long as you played country and pop music, uh, rock and early rock music, I suppose uh, rock and roll. Um, you know, you're that, that went over well certainly with the the teenagers. Right. Uh, but, you know, if I had been playing Jimi Hendrix, I don't think it would have gone over so well. And certainly the older people didn't appreciate the electric guitar even so much. Right, <laughs> right. So I switched to 12-string guitar, Sold my electric guitar, and switched to 12-string. Because I was more into Gordon Lightfoot anyway. Right, right. At that stage, in the late 60s, just when I started to go into university. 69, uh, that was. So that was a transition for me getting away from the pop music entirely and more into folk and folk pop like Gordon Lightfoot and Leonard Cohen and uh, and uh, and then blending in the traditional music Newfoundland music you know right I mean right. Gordon Lightfoot used to sing Squidjig and Ground at one point in his career and uh, right. and uh, it was one of his favorite songs was Haber Lacue and so he he uh, had a knowledge of Newfoundland music and appreciation for it. And and I guess I was in that world as well, combining the pop music with Newfoundland folk music.
0: Yeah. Talk to me a bit more about your own music that way. I mean, you're... You, you know, you're referencing a bunch of it kind of passingly here, but uh, take me on a, a little bit of a journey, I guess, of how that's worked for you. Because, I mean, I, I know a bunch of the things you do now and you're kind of talking about how you started with classical and you moved into Newfoundland and there was some pop, uh, folk pop there. You know, how how did that sort of dovetail with or outside of the times, I guess, as it's gone by?
1: Well, a seminal moment for me was in around 1967, 68 when uh, Gordon, Mm. Quentin came to Gander with uh, a singer and um, performed at a school. And uh, this is the first time I'd seen a Niv Lander play guitar live, Mm. uh, acoustic guitar. And this is something, not being a singer, really, I was moving in the direction of instrumental guitar at that stage, you know. And... um, and seeing Gordon play an instrumental acoustic guitar it was a life changing moment. Oh, wow. Yeah, I, I can just remember to this day and you know, since got on to uh, be good friends with Gordon. And mm-hmm. uh, actually, we performed together a
0: little. But um, what the, was it that grabbed you so much about that?
1: Well, I guess, you know, it's one thing to see somebody on television from another world, another uh, place to. Uh, perform a piece, but when you see someone from your own province and you're in the room, you know, it's a, it's a much more powerful thing. Mm. And and I realized this is where I want to go, mm. you know, so, um, and it was, it was years later that I actually got to talk to him and bumped into a music store in St. John's mm. and was in awe, of course, <laughs> and still I am to some extent, <laughs> but, um, but that that was another changing moment, you know, as I say, getting into uh, uh, Gordon Life, because he was the big sort of Canadian star at that time, and, mm. you know, this lead guitar player who influenced Gordon and inspired us, Red Shea. Uh, uh, you know, then moving to St. John's, uh, and then I started becoming aware of uh, classical guitar. Um, and bumped into somebody who was actually from Ghana originally, but I didn't know him there. We mm. just got to know him in, in St. John's, Brian Van Kestren, and we both sort of were teaching ourselves classical guitar from the solo guitar book. Right. And uh, so we uh, exchanged information. It was a tiny little world. Nobody else was in the province was probably playing classical guitar. Right. Only two of us. <laughs> Very tiny world. Yeah. So... Uh, that was, you know, like, that was changing, and, and a, a big change in my life as well. And I spent a bit of time working in Labrador in a construction camp for a work term. Picked up a, a banjo there. Um, it was actually, actually, come to think of it, after I came back from Labrador with the banjo head From an American that I traded in for a classical guitar. That's that's where I got into that. So it would have been around 1970 or so. Right. And uh, from there, I guess uh, it was more, you know, going to the clubs around Saint John's and hearing all the different blends of rock and pop and folk, hearing the Newfoundland music down at the Belmont. You know downtown, and uh, just um, being exposed to all those different styles of music. Because you know, you, when you grow up in the small, smaller places, you're, you're you don't get to hear that much live music.
0: Right, right. And I mean, you've been. Um you know, just doing music for lack of a better description for a long time, I presume at this point, uh, you, you just mentioned, for instance, working another type of job in Labrador, what's that been like for you in terms of like your lifetime of work when it came to, uh, making a living as a musician versus working a part-time job or a full-time job. Tell me about that.
1: Well, I and mean, music was still just a hobby at this stage. I was doing engineering at university and, uh, you know, But during the work terms, I'd get to different parts of the province and run into other people and were into music and we'd jam, you know, and so on. Mm -hmm. Um, But it wasn't until, I guess, 72, 73 or something, I moved out west to to, uh, work different jobs. And eventually... And where out west? I was in Alberta mm-hmm. for, uh, for several months, and then British Columbia for almost a year in Vancouver and around
0: that area. And uh, how was the Newfoundland identity out there versus you know for yourself? I mean, was that were you in still a Newfoundland circle when you were out there, or did you were you completely kind of disconnected from your life here?
1: Oh no, I was I was connected with the Newfoundland circle. First of all, with my sister in Edmonton, and then. Um, with my cousin when I was in Vancouver, who was from Aspen Cove, the joining community, mm-hmm. to Little Cove. And uh, so when, there was always the Newfoundland Circle and then going out to the clubs where traditional music was played. So the, that uh, and traditional Irish music, usually Irish pubs, that was more what I was drawn. But I'd simultaneously go into the Classical Guitar Society concerts mm-hmm. and you know, workshops and so on. So the both worlds were still there, the classical world as well as the folk music world and pop music, I suppose, too. Cool. But uh, a lot of exposure in larger cities, and uh, I actually started teaching guitar, never having studied guitar <laughs> before. I was in Vancouver.
0: Just stay one lesson ahead of the student. That's all <laughs> you can do.
1: <laughs> yeah, but, you know, I had worked my way through, through most of the solo guitar playing, so I thought I could play, but... <laughs> But I managed to fool a few people. (laughs) But, um, yeah, and then after that, I realized that uh, I had to try something else. So I moved to Ottawa to study meteorology. But um, I didn't, after a few months of that, I realized that, A, I wasn't very good at it. and B, I didn't enjoy doing it. C, they were going to poke me way up in an isolated part of the Arctic if I did get a job. Right doing something that was monotonous. Yeah, yeah. So I started teaching guitar again with an organization called the Royal Cons- what was it called? The Royal Conservancy of Music, they're called, mm-hmm. and a um, private company. Anyway, and then from there, I started taking part-time courses at Carleton University and then went full-time, eventually did a music degree right at Carleton. Classical guitar, or classical guitar, yeah. But they also had studies in in uh, other aspects of Canadian music, Mm. and and um, I did a lot of research into folk music from all over the world. Right, Um, and uh, uh, yeah, it was a it was a really good it was a really good class a course. Mm. Um,
0: So, what was the moment that you? What was the moment or year that you? realize that your identity as a musician was truly full-time, all-encompassing, this is the only thing you're doing? Well, I guess
1: after I graduated, I uh, was 78, I moved back. And I had this sort of uh, romantic dream of being a folk song collector. Mm-hmm. This is something, I, I guess, it goes right back to high school. The first time I saw the Kenneth Peacock's Songs in Newfoundland ports three-volume collection of Newfoundland songs. And, uh, you know, and um, this is something I, I had back in my mind because all that time I was eventually doing something like that myself. Mm. Um, but so I, I had this, through an opera singer who had been to Newfoundland, had met Anita Best mm-hmm. out in Southeast Spite, Mary Sheen, mm-hmm. near Mare Island. and, I uh, started doing some uh, transcribing of Newfoundland uh, tunes he had collected and recorded when he was there and uh, for a performance that he did in uh, the theater at the National Arts Center. So so I, anyway, through his connections with St. John's Folk Arts Council, I got a summer job collecting songs out of Potential Bay, Mm -hmm. spending the summer three months going around with my tape recorder, recording these uh, people that had been resettled from all over, Central Bay Okay. It was just a magical job. Right, right.
0: <laughs> I couldn't think of anything I would rather do. You know. it, it reminds me of something Pamela Morgan said in our episode together, that mm-hmm. she struggled a little bit uh, wanting to do similar work. And I think one of the things she, she talked on for a minute was about how it was a challenge because she wanted to preserve that music, yeah. but found that a lot of the people that she was trying to to record were very gun shy when it came to recording, and that there was a challenge, at least for her, when it came to uh, how to try to capture that sort of ineffable live performance moment that she, how she had come to love some of these songs with people who essentially weren't recording artists and had no desire to be recording artists. Did you run into any of that sort of challenge? Uh,
1: to some degree with some people, but, uh, you know, I sort of devised different ways of right. bringing along your flask of rum. And yeah. <laughs> <Fair> <laughs> particularly enough. with the guys. That's right. <laughs> and they were mostly men. Okay. Yeah. There was just a smattering of women that sang for me. Right. Um, and maybe it was different for her as a young girl, a young woman traveling, uh, you know, Collecting from these guys who may be a little more shy, but bringing along the half flask of rum, not a full
0: one. Right. There was a careful balance there. Be careful of, balance. Yeah. yeah. Lubricating without uh, <laughs> without taking it off the rails. Yeah.
1: yeah, that's right. And getting to know them, you know, and you, you know it took time. I didn't have, have a car. At That point, so I actually hitchhiked from St. John's to Besantia and I <clears throat> ended up recording this, I collecting a song on the way, mm, <laughs> mm. you know. But you know, with your tape recorder borrowed from the university, and uh, just uh, yeah, it was staying uh, at Mrs. Brown's boarding house in Besantia, mm. it was a real eye-opener for me I must say all the songs you know I collected I don't know, 140 songs and tunes and, mm-hmm. and um, from all over Pasensha Bay and just meeting the most marvelous people and mm-hmm. just really feeling that I had sort of reclaimed my Newfoundland identity I, because I, I now felt that I was uh, you know truly back in the province after spending so many years you know on the mainland four or five years in different provinces and right. So it was it was a real reintrodu- re, uh, reintroduction to the problems for me.
0: Yeah. Identity is such a, an interesting topic as well because, I mean, everyone that's been on the podcast, myself included, wears a lot of hats. That's sort of what you have to do as an artist, maybe now more than ever, but potentially always, you know. It's just artists are just generally curious people. And, you know, for me, it's... Uh, it's film, it's with, even within music, it's it's composition, it's being a singer-songwriter or a performer. There's so many, you know, it's not even tooting your own horn. It's just sort of like this tapestry of things that you, I think, can fall into. And it makes it, the pie chart, I suppose, of identity becomes interesting because you're sort of like, what am I, you know, at a certain point? How do I identify even chunks of what I do, you know, and I don't necessarily think we have to, but I would never go around saying like, I'm a filmmaker before a musician, at least at this point in my life, because I'm not, you know, I've done some film work, but it's Mm. been very much dwarfed by my career in music. So, you know, um, I'm curious for yourself who definitely wears a ton of hats and we're going to get into some of the other ones in a minute. How do you identify that? You know, clearly um, you're a performer and you're a writer, but it's really interesting to hear about your earliest influence of remembering that Newfoundland book and then, you know, songs and then hearing about going to Placentia Bay to do this and, and knowing about the books you've you've published as well. We'll talk about that in a minute. How do you see the pie chart of Eric West's <laughs> in, in, in music?
1: <laughs> well, I guess you, you just follow your interests and your passions. And I guess that, as I say, that was the ideal introduction back to Newfoundland culture. Mm-hmm. And and uh, simultaneously, you know, in 1978, uh, that was just after the first uh, folk festival, uh, St. John's Folk Festival and the Good Entertainment Festival, which uh, happened, actually, the second one happened in Kill in 1978. And that was like the Woodstock for folk music <laughs> in, in Newfoundland. I don't know if you've ever heard about this legendary event, but it that again that was sort of a seminal moment and it was it was just uh, see what happened was some uh, later on um, i'm going to say these many of these people became close friends uh, isabella st john um, was one of the people that started up this festival she hitchhiked all over san over newfoundland mm-hmm. to research uh, these folk musicians and encourage them to come to this festival and there was uh, uh, massive publicity, you know, to try to find, to bring everyone into uh, this into Kill Devil for this festival. And so Jerry Strong, um, who I met at the St. John's Folk Art Festival uh, that summer in 78, he uh, was invited. S- people found out he played tin Wilson and invited them, and so... I met Jerry at this festival. Jerry invited me along. So I sort of snuck in the back door and uh, got to all this fabulous festival and uh, hang out with everybody. Rufus Gincher was there, Minnie White, Ron Hines, and, you know, these people from all all over the province. And uh, it was just, like, just a fabulous weekend of, again, reintroducing me to province and sort of give me a whole education into, uh, uh, folk music.
0: Right. Right. So, you know, what would you say if I said to you, you know, uh, you're a musician, you know, that's probably, I'll, I'll put it this way, you know, each podcast so far has just had, um, you know, a qualifier like uh, actor so-and-so or, or poet so-and-so, you know, I would definitely put musician Eric West. But within that is this big umbrella of things. How do you see yourself when you wake up in the day? Are you thinking of yourself almost like, sounds like a lot of what you're doing is, 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 is documentation and almost like folklore style work of preserving this heritage. But I also think of you as a teacher and as a, as a writer and a performer.
1: Yeah, I, I, I don't know if I want to sort of pigeonhole myself in any category, but uh, I guess it's all sort of communications, you know, it's all related to uh, communicating um, and preserving. Mm-hmm. Uh, I suppose that's the only generalization I can make about what I do. Sure. It's just basically taking what's around you and doing the best with it to... Uh, communicate and pass it on to others right it's it's, it's the only comment
0: yes (laughs) i I know it's an impossible (laughs) question i love to ask impossible questions just to see what will happen but i mean for me for example uh, i've had to come up with this answer i suppose uh, myself almost just for myself than anybody else that that communication tends to be at the root of it all in one Mm -hmm. way or another i'm trying to i'm trying to connect with people and i think that 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 obviously, That's obvious when it comes to teaching, I think, the, how that relates to teaching. I think that when it comes to performing, that's also somewhat obvious because you ultimately are entertaining. So you're trying to connect with your audience for the most part. <laughs> most performers are anyway. And uh, and, and also songwriting, though, and, and even filmmaking, they're all just ways of trying to, um, you know, approach it like the golden rule for me. You know, I'm trying to, you know, I think about how movies and music have shaped how I understand the world and mm-hmm. I guess I'm just trying to do that same thing you know but I but it's really down to trying to understand what drives us mm-hmm. you know is, is that kind of what you're getting at as well is that what drives you to do is there like a central underlying thing that drives you to do all the different things you do
1: I don't know if I've analyzed that much but it's um really circumstances sometimes sort of Lead you in certain directions. After I spent the summer collecting songs, and um, then I started living in St. John's and teaching privately. And that sort of uh, brought me in a new direction. Uh, and I started listening to music that was going on locally and then forming a little group uh, with uh, Jerry Strong and uh, Des Walsh, a mm. trio that went on to become Tickle Harbor. And uh, so was originally just three of us and we played informally everywhere, you know, parties and <laughs> at the blessing of the fleet. <laughs> right. But, you know, it was an informal group playing, you know, for just uh, for fun. Yeah. Uh, we did eventually get a couple gigs, which were paid for, but um, it, it, was, it was mostly for fun. And at the same time I as I was teaching and, uh, playing uh, some classical guitar here and there, Mm -hmm. but uh, it was mostly the folk music that was driving things. Mm -hmm. Went on to, I guess, in the later 80s. um, Well, I did form a couple informal uh, groups. I was playing with Jim Payne for a while. Uh, I played with uh, Mary Muckle doing... uh, uh, some voice and guitar things, or sort of folk, classical, renaissance. We did an album of lullabies Went from all over the world. Right. One time with cool. Mary. And uh, again, let say, doing some work like that, playing some... Uh, and I, I got involved in music theatre for a little bit too, kind of a council grant. Um, exploration grants and kind of council doing mix of theater and music, mm-hmm. sort of dabble into that for a while. Um, did a version of the Beggar's Opera. It was sort of a classical folk blend,
0: right? From this piece from the seventeen hundreds. What did you learn about? Uh, what did you learn about that interaction when it came to music and theater as sort of an offshoot of what you'd done before?
1: Uh well, I guess there's a. I learned, (laughs) there's a lot to learn. (laughs) I wasn't the natural actor or anything like that, or I wasn't trained in theater, so I don't know why I moved in that direction at all. But it just intrigued me. Uh, I just love theater and films. I'm a great fan of film and theater. Um, But uh, it was just something that sort of I thought I had to do. And uh, it was a great way of collaborating with others. And mm-hmm. So the Babers' Opera was, like I say, was a, was sort of a, uh, a massive project in which in a whole bunch of new people became involved. Uh, I think, uh, I'm trying to think of some of the people. I and mean, Benny Malone was in it, and uh, I think mean, Bernie Stapleton. and see... Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, it, it was some of the, the big names that have gone on to theater and, uh, mm-hmm. and television we're in, were in just a simple little production right, <laughs> at, right, at the LSPO Hall Sure very much going out jumping into the deep end Right but somehow it was it was fun and um, but it went on to other projects like uh, researching the life of O'Carroll and the uh, Irish Harpist and doing a theater production collaboration mm-hmm. with Pete Susie and that Mm-hmm Cool. Actually, the very first project, I think, was a, a tour around the province, <laughs> um, traveling concert, it was called. I think it was in 1981. And uh, just performing a whole variety of uh, material, everything from House of Hate, excerpt from House of Hate by Percy Jane's theater piece to uh, a whole fast by... Uh, Kevin Major. Kevin Major, thank you. Yeah. And plus songs and music. Uh, Christina Smith, who's uh, who I'm still collaborating with, was uh, just starting off then, and she, she came along. Right that trip all over the province, coast to boat. <laughs> right <laughs> everywhere performing in small communities.
0: There you have it. End of part one. Tune in next week for part two of my conversation with Eric West. Please like and subscribe to this podcast on your favorite podcast app. Like, share. Whatever you can do, I appreciate it. See you next time.